I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Welcome to the Broken Book Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda and Sam, and we're ready again this week to appreciate, dissect, criticize, defend, and generally nerd out about the Bible. To some extent, the Bible is my central spiritual text. It's my guide, it's my comfort, it's my lighthouse, my teacher, yada, 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 all that stuff. But the Bible is something else for me, something almost as important. The Bible is my fandom. I'm a Bible nerd, and I want to geek out about the Bible. I want to go to Bible conventions, go into crazy panels. I want to cosplay as sexy Second Corinthians. Christianity isn't just a religion. It's also a hobby. Many of my favorite fandom podcasts are ranking podcasts. They rank all the winners on Survivor, or they rank the Harry Potter books, or they rank all 121 episodes of Lost. Or maybe they'll rank the top 10 most overrated best picture Oscar winners. I just love these podcasts. So I figured I'd rank the 12 minor prophets by order of entertainment value. Not necessarily the best books, or the most morally valuable books, just which minor prophet books do I most enjoy reading and rereading? I'm going in descending order, saving the most entertaining for last. All right, first up, number 12, the least entertaining minor prophet, is Zechariah. Zechariah is about restoring the power of the priesthood after the exile. Basically, it's about the birth of a theocracy. And it's a very sloppy book. It's written in separate sections over a hundred years, and sometimes books written in multiple time periods are really, really interesting, but Zechariah is not one of those books. And that's because there's not very much thematic unity in Zechariah. One vision happens. Then another vision happens. Then another vision happens. And it doesn't all work together to say something interesting about God. More than that, Post-exilic prophetic literature is harder to identify with than pre-exilic literature or exilic literature. For starters, it focuses on ritual purity rather than social and political justice. So instead of talking about how the poor and the marginalized are being mistreated, post-exilic theology often focuses on the, say, the correct way to sacrifice a cow. Also, theology is more supernatural and symbolic and less rooted in human lived experience. This makes Zechariah hard to read in modern contexts, and it makes Zechariah hard to deconstruct. Basically, the book doesn't seem to tell us much about God or the universe or our everyday lives. So if it's a weekday night, let's say a Tuesday, and you order a pizza and kick back on the couch, you turn on Netflix, you want to binge watch a minor prophet, yeah, you're not going to want to pick Zechariah. So, number 11 is Obadiah. Obadiah is about only one thing. 
God is going to destroy the nation of Edom because the Edomites are the bad guys. So the entire book seems just slightly xenophobic. But let's face it, there's casual nationalistic violence in most of prophetic literature. That's how all diplomacy worked back then. See, the Iron Age, that, that was a hard times. So Edom is this tiny nation next to Judah, traditionally viewed as the descendants of Esau. What makes Obadiah so heinous is that Edom is poorer and weaker than Judah. So Obadiah is punching down. Usually oracles against nations target powerful, super powerful empires that kill people a lot, but, but Edom is just a scrappy nuisance. I might be biased here, though, because I think Esau is a delightful human being, and I want good things to happen to Esau's ancestors. So, if Obadiah is so annoying, why don't I put it dead last on this list? Simple. Obadiah has one amazingly awesome saving grace that makes it entertaining. Obadiah is really, 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 really short. It's only 22 verses. You know, it takes hours, even days, to slog through Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But if you speed read, you can bang out Obadiah in 30 seconds. You can read an entire book of the Bible in half a minute. That's a quick and easy way to earn godly spirituality points. And it's kind of fun. Which brings us to number 10 on this list. The Book of Nahum. Like Obadiah, Nahum is also an oracle against one single nation. Nahum is about how evil the Assyrian Empire is. Nahum rejoices over how God is destroying Nineveh, Assyria's capital city. It's a gloriously fire and brimstony book. And Nahum has quite a morbid imagination. What makes Nahum more entertaining than Obadiah is that the Assyrians were the global superpower at the time. The Assyrians wanted to take over Judah, kill all the men, impregnate all the women. They're, they're genociders who get destroyed before they can genocide. Nahum is sort of like that it's okay to punch a Nazi meme that's been all over the internet lately because revenge may be morally questionable, but it's certainly entertaining, and the Assyrians seem to have it coming. Number nine is Zephaniah. Zephaniah is nice because it has a plot. It might be the most coherently structured book in all of prophetic literature, if you're into that whole coherency thing. So what's the plot? It's all a prophecy made before the Babylonian exile. God decides to reverse creation. God destroys all the cities. Every human gets killed. All the livestock, all the critters, all the birds in the air, and all the fish in the sea, they get removed from existence. Creation is over. God has chosen to sacrifice all of life. Afterwards, after the decimation, Judah will repent, and God will act all friendly again, and God will start singing love songs to Jerusalem. Now, 
If you pay very, very close attention to that description, you may notice one huge, big, glaring plot hole. If God had murdered every single living thing on the planet, why are there still Judeans to repent? Who exactly is God seen to? I feel so sorry for people who read the Bible extremely literally, because the book of Zephaniah makes absolutely no fucking sense. It's balderdash. Also, Zephaniah is quite, how to put it, d derivative. He copies ideas that other prophets express way better. For instance, Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord, but Amos has a far more compelling description of God's day. And then, later, Zephaniah tries to describe social justice and God's judgment. And it sounds like a mediocre copycat of Isaiah. So yeah, Zephaniah is the bargain bin poor man's prophet. But, 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 like, that's kind of why I enjoy Zephaniah. It's the train wreck book of the Bible. It's prim and proper and well-organized, but its message is just totally irrational bananas. It's pants. It's crazy. And the writing is amateurish and sloppy, and I just love it. All right, all right. Number eight is Micah. Micah is one of the prestige books of the Bible. Pastors like to quote Micah. But folks don't really read Micah very much. It's a serious text. It's a dour text. It's a text that contains a passionate plea for justice. I want to like this book more than I actually do. See, for some reason, it's the minor prophet I have the most trouble getting through. Maybe it's because it feels too pretentious. I'm just not sure. It's just very hard for me to read from one end of Micah to the other. Anyways, Micah takes place around 720 BCE, which is about 130 years before the Babylonian exile. Assyria has just destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and it looks like Assyria is about to destroy Judah. The authorities, you know, the king, the priests, the media, all those folks think God is going to protect Jerusalem. Micah isn't so sure. Micah thinks God is a very, very angry landlord, and God wants to take their land back from Judah. Judah deserves destruction. This makes Micah a direct rival of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, at the exact same time, prophesies that God will always, always, always protect the Davidic kingdom and the temple. Micah, in contrast, thinks Judah is screwed. In the short run, Isaiah is right, and Micah is wrong. Assyria does not destroy Jerusalem. But, in the long run, Micah is right, and Isaiah is wrong. Because six generations later, the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem, and God will not protect the temple and Davidic monarchy. So Micah and Isaiah are both kind of right and both kind of wrong, and that's probably why both books are in the Bible. Also, just like Isaiah, there is a second part of Micah written right after the end of the exile. So 200 years later, a different author decides to finish Micah's book. 
This second Micah predicts that Judah will conquer all of its neighbors after the exile. Judah will at last become an empire. Once again, second Micah directly contradicts second Isaiah, because the exilic second Isaiah believes that Judah will serve and help other nations rather than conquering them. Okay, sorry, that was probably more historical background than strictly necessary, but I like historical backgrounds. As far as the actual content of the book, well, okay. The book of Micah is a courtroom drama. Yahweh is suing Israel and Judah for breach of contract because the Israelites have broken the covenant, because they are mean and unfair to poor people. The prophet Micah is Judah's lawyer, pleading for mercy. Micah begs God to spare Judah, and Micah asks God what they want. And God responds, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And because Judah isn't acting justly, or loving mercy, or walking humbly, God sentences Judah to death by starvation. But later, in the future, God promises to be more forgiving. God will eventually let Judah triumph. So that's Micah. Kind of a hard book to summarize. And that's probably why I think it's kind of overrated. But... Luckily, I preferred number seven a little bit better, Malachi. Malachi is a short, stark book. Malachi pierces. Its words are piercing. When I read the text, I feel uncomfortable, but in a good kind of way. I feel the presence of a very just and very powerful God, a God who will make the world right by any means necessary. Malachi takes place in Jerusalem sometime after the exile, and Judeans have become lazy. The populist isn't tithing very much anymore. Priests are sacrificing sickly second-rate livestock to God. Judean men are abandoning their wives, leaving their families impoverished. There is a general theme that love has left Judah, love of God, Love of family, romantic love, it's disappearing. And God will not let that happen. So at the end, God promises to send the second coming of the prophet Elijah. Elijah will make children love their parents again. And parents will love their children again. Love will be restored. For Christians, that is how the Old Testament ends. With the promise of Elijah the love prophet. It's a compelling ending, which leaves room for a sequel. In the New Testament, the love prophet shows up, and his name is John the Baptist, the new Elijah. John fulfills Malachi's prophecy by baptizing Jesus. Then God declares their love for their son, a parent's love for a child. And that love is expressed through the Holy Spirit, which is then shared with all of humankind. 
It's mushy and corny and saccharine, and I just love it. It's beautiful. Number seven is Haggai. Yay, Haggai! Haggai takes place immediately after the exile. Why is Haggai great? Because it's practical. It's down to earth. The exiles are back in Jerusalem, and they've got shit to do. They need to rebuild the temple. When you read too much prophetic literature, Haggai is such a fresh air breath. See, prophecy is so full of symbolism and abstract thought and poetry that doesn't translate very well, all from an era that modern readers don't actually understand very well. And prophecy gets so dense that it's practically unreadable. Not Haggai. Haggai is about a dude who wants to build a building. And then the building gets built. That's real-world stakes and real-world accomplishments. It's grounded. Haggai is also a bittersweet text. The prophet Haggai has a big man crush on this guy, Zerubbabel. He's the governor. Haggai is super psyched because Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. Maybe he'll be the new king? Maybe he'll be a messianic figure? Maybe Zerubbabel will restore Judah's glory? Well, spoiler alert, Zerubbabel doesn't. He never becomes king, which sucks, because he seems like a nice guy. Weirdly, centuries later, Zerubbabel makes a cameo appearance in the Book of Revelation. He is one of the two witnesses of God. Zerubbabel prophesies during the end times until he gets murdered by the beast from the sea. But don't worry, 42 months later, Zerubbabel gets resurrected and causes a catastrophic earthquake. As a side note, the book of Revelation is not nearly as down-to-earth and practical as Haggai. And we're coming up on number five, which is Joel. This is where ranking gets tough because all the remaining books are pretty entertaining. Anyhow, Joel. Joel is about grasshoppers. Most prophecy is about deep, dark, terrible politics of destruction. Not so much with Joel. Joel relates prophecy to the average everyday life of your average Judean. See, see, every single year, a breed of grasshoppers called locusts eat some Judean crops. They're a pest, but they're manageable. Unlike the Assyrians and Babylonians, locusts are manageable. Joel frames the yearly struggle of farmers against locusts as a part of God's greater cosmic struggle against evil and chaos. So it's not just what kings and priests do that matters. Farmers have a front-line role to play in spiritual warfare. In return for all the hardship Judah has faced, both from foreign invasion and from locusts, God promises to send a gift. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't get me wrong, there are some dark bits in Joel, but for the most part, it's a life-affirming, human-affirming book. God is going to intervene positively in everyone's life. It's a very personal, very spiritual conception of salvation. This is why Joel is the Old Testament book that most feels like a New Testament book. Oh, oh, and Joel is an easy book to read. It doesn't feel like everything is going over your head. So if you're having a long, exhausting day and just want to chillax of a piece of biblical prophetic literature, I suggest Joel. It's smooth. Okay, we're in the final stretch here with number four, Amos, the oldest book of the Bible. People should read Amos the same way they listen to death metal music. It is pure, justified rage. The powers that be, the human aristocracy, hurt the poor and marginalized. The entire system is unfair, the entire system is violent, and God is going to blow it up. Amos is full-on proto-Marxist. He sees how the northern kingdom of Israel uses religion as a tool of oppression. People engage in stupid festivals and ceremonies, making stupid sacrifices, and they pretend this then makes them righteous. Well, guess what? God doesn't care. Amos reverses the meaning and purpose of religion from the establishment to the anti-establishment. And Amos isn't pretty. It's gory and violent and hateful and vulgar, but he sees that something is massively fucked up about human authority. And he's right. And through his stubbornness and harsh tongue, Amos starts a theological conversation that has lasted over two and a half thousand years and is still relevant. And yeah, okay, maybe it says something about my own personality and psychology that I find Amos so fun. Because I absolutely need books of the Bible that let me vent out my frustration. I need a damnation text because so much of the ancient world and so much of the modern world should be damned. Anyway, we covered Amos at more length in our first podcast, so I won't go in depth here. But seriously, fuck the system and glory to Amos. Number three is Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts with what I see as the most compelling human-God conversation in the Bible. It's about a decade and a half before the exile, and the prophet figures out that something really, really wrong is happening. The prophet Habakkuk is surrounded by violence. Internally, the Judean authorities are hurting the poor. Externally, enemy armies are getting closer and closer and closer, and Habakkuk doesn't like this. Habakkuk wants peace. And God doesn't seem very interested. God doesn't like peace in this book. In fact, at the start of the book, Habakkuk begs God to stop the violence. Why are you still letting this violence happen? And God completely misses the point. God doesn't grok the concept of the question. Because God responds, Oh, don't worry. 
I'm going to solve your violence with even more violence. I'm sending the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are people fishermen. They fish humans and kill them with hooks. They'll kill all the violent people. They'll hunt you all down. Habakkuk is appalled at this response. If you use violent people to destroy other violent people, you haven't solved the original problem, which is violence. The prophet Habakkuk hounds God. He pesters God. He builds a tall billboard and posts a big sign asking God, why are you letting this all happen? And of course, God doesn't really respond. In scripture, God rarely directly answers specific questions. In my experience, God also acts this way in real life. Very few direct answers. God does say, be patient, have faith. The righteous will live, will survive by their faith. And bingo, bingo. That's the origin of the concept of salvation through faith. I like this book because it rings psychologically true. The world is in chaos, and though there is a God force in this world, it's absurdly hard to find God sometimes. There is love and justice and meaning out there. If we have faith, if we're patient, if we look hard enough, we can find it. We can find God. But it'll be confusing and really, really messy. Faith is rough. I also like this book because it accurately captures the cyclical evil of retributive justice. People do violent things, and they are punished with violence, and then the punishers get punished, and then the punishers of the punishers get punished, and so on, and so on, and so on. Ancient moral philosophy seems rooted in this never-ending death trap, which Habakkuk objects to. By objecting, the book of Habakkuk becomes sort of a mission statement for all of scripture. Because to the extent that the Bible has a plot, it's a rejection of punishment and the rise of grace. And this is such a painful transition, because the notion that the guilty deserve to be harmed is so deeply rooted in the human psyche, and is so deeply rooted in our conception of God. Habakkuk presents the conflict between retributive justice and grace in a simple and compelling form. Number two is Hosea. Hosea really, really knows how to write dialogue for God. God pops out as a fully formed, four-dimensional character. God is supposed to be a mysterious mass of contradictions, and Hosea delivers on that promise. Like I mentioned with Habakkuk, the Bible is largely about the tension between judgment and forgiveness, between retributive justice and grace. In Hosea, this tension is God's primary character trait. God is this massively disappointed parent. God is almost self-loathing because they cannot stand how far humanity has fallen. But just as God is about ready to give up and destroy Israel, God remembers how much they love their people. They get caught up in memories of the good old days. 
and God reverses their judgment decision. Many liberal Christians deconstruct scripture by reading God's character development as a subtext in the Bible. But in Hosea, it's not subtext, it's text. Hosea presents God's inner monologue as God chooses grace over judgment. And that sounds like it should be a glorious, happy, huggy, cheery Bible moment. Nope. Hosea reads like a psychological horror book to modern readers. Because God shows grace and love by beating Israel. And the prophet Hosea reflects God's love by beating his own wife. If Hosea can starve, isolate, and shame his wife hard enough, maybe she'll love him and obey him. And if God can isolate, starve, and shame Israel hard enough, maybe the Israelites will repent. I can't help but adore the book of Hosea. I was raised on Hitchcock movies like Psycho and Vertigo. I enjoy films about serial killers. I want to know characters like Hannibal Lecter or Hosea better. The line between love and hateful obsession is very thin, and Hosea's God occupies that liminal space. The book also reveals some of my darkest, most hidden longings. Because yes, okay, yeah, part of me wants God to beat my sins out of me, to reforge me into submission. That's the torrid underbelly of faith. But that creepy undertone is present in basically all loving relationships. We want our old self to die off so we can be born again. We hope love breaks and recreates us. This should never ever be at the center of a relationship. And I'm deeply grateful that Hosea is not the only book of the Bible. But these emotions are real, and this book lets us explore them. But I could never put Hosea at number one, because fandom is about liking things. It's about appreciating media that makes you happy. The Bible isn't just something that morbidly intrigues me. It's something I love. It makes me smile. And as a Christian, I don't follow faith because of its darkness and self-loathing. I find peace and salvation and light. So, of course, number one is Jonah. It really has to be Jonah. Where God ends violence with peace. Where humans are trying to tear the world apart and God graciously puts it all back together. And yeah, yes, yes, I know, I know, I know, it's not fair to put Jonah at number one. Because Jonah is a narrative, a story, while the rest of the prophets are a collection of poems. But you know what? The Bible isn't always fair. And Jonah is the most entertaining book of minor prophetic literature because it's actually trying to entertain us. Jonah is funny. It's intentional comedy. It's satire. More than that, it's satirizing other prophets. The prophet Jonah's singular obsession with destroying Nineveh pokes fun at books like Obadiah and Nahum. The prophet's angst and whininess pokes fun at books like Hosea or Amos or Micah or Jeremiah. 
See, God's four-dimensional character depth from Hosea is still present in Jonah. And it's an authentically hard choice. God is still trapped in the cognitive dissonance between judgment and grace. But this time, God chooses grace. And that's why we love the Bible. That's why we binge read these books.